Welcome to Friday Q&A Live, or Mike Ash Rambles About Stuff. This is Episode 2, and I'm Mike Ash, your host. This is something of a spoken version of Friday Q&A, my blog, which you can find on mikeash.com. Click on blog. You can also find me on Twitter at Mike Ash. On today's episode, I'm going to be covering three main topics. First, I finally got my complete Friday Q&A books out, the latest volumes. I want to talk about optionals in Swift. And finally, I want to talk about wiping and restoring my iPhone to make it faster, which is ridiculous, but it seems to have worked. So let's get started. First up, my new books are finally out, as you probably saw if you follow me on Twitter or read my blog at all. These books are called The Complete Friday Q&A, Volumes 2 and 3, and they are a compilation of all of my blog posts from about 2012 through 2016. I released Volume 1 many years ago, and I've been trying to work on Volume 2 ever for several years, but it took a lot of work to get them out. It's kind of amazing how much work it is to just build a book out of blog posts that already exist. But I finally got there. A few months ago, I was getting very close and started looking around for where I was going to publish it. And I discovered a bit of a problem with this, which is that I had too much material. I had about 1,400 pages worth of material. And there are limits as to how big a printed book can actually be. All of the print-on-demand services that I was finding had limits like 800, 900 pages, something like that, and nobody wanted to print a 1,400-page book. And I started thinking maybe they shouldn't, maybe that would be too big. So this got me to split it into two volumes. I just sliced it in half. Volume 2 is the first half of what I had, Volume 3 is the second half. That got me down to about 700 pages each, which is good for what these services offer. Uh, I ended up printing through Lulu which is probably the best-known print-on-demand service out there. And for the size I picked, they have a limit of about 740 pages, which was just right. So I've got paper copies of the book. They look great. The digital version really is the more uh, canonical one. It seems to be the one people go for these days. Uh, makes sense that people would like a digital version of a book about programming. But I really like having the print version, too. So both versions are available. I'm really glad they're out. It's been a long time, and I'm going to try really hard not to wait so long for the next one. Now I've got three of these volumes, and it's really wonderful to have. Some people have wondered about my workflow. It's a very strange programmer-style workflow. Most people, when they write a book, they'll make a Microsoft Word document or something along those lines and put everything and adjust the formatting and all that stuff. But I'm a crazy person. I'm a programmer, so that's not how I did it. I have all of my blog posts in HTML form, and I wrote a script that builds a book out of them. So it's this crazy Python script that takes all of the blog HTML files plus some other HTML files for things like the introduction, the acknowledgments, and builds the book from there. It builds the table of contents, it builds an index, and it squishes everything together, and then uses Calibre to create an EPUB and uses docraptor.com to create a PDF. So every time I have edits, what I'm doing is actually going into the original HTML, making the changes there, then I go back and run the script again, rebuild the whole book that way, and it creates new EPUBs and PDFs, and then I go from there. So the process is just like 
we're used to with programmers building an app where you change the source code and then build and you get a new output. Works great for me. I'm sure most writers would not like this at all, but I'm a programmer first and foremost. So that's the book. Uh, you can find it at mikeash.com book. That includes volume one and volumes two and three, various places to buy it. You can get print version, you can get digital versions. If you already own volume one and you would like to get volumes two or three or both, please write in. I'll give you a code for $10 off the digital versions from my store. And if you're a student, also please write in with some proof of your studenticity, such as writing from a .edu address, and I'll give you a nice student discount for those. Moving on, I want to talk about Swift Optionals, and I'm sure you know about Swift Optionals, and you don't need me to tell you how they work. But it's always been very interesting for me to consider. Um, optionals are one of the best features of the language. Obviously, Swift did not come up with the idea, but I would say it popularized them to an extent. And it's a really, really cool feature. It solves a lot of problems with things like null pointer dereferences, and it makes our programs a lot safer. It's been interesting to see how a lot of people really have trouble with optionals. And of course, I get it. It's a new feature. It's different from what other languages have. And so naturally, it's going to be a sticking point until you can get through and learn it. But it's really interesting to me because when you really dig into it, optionals are not something new. Optionals exist in almost every programming language out there. If you have come from C or C++ or Java or JavaScript or Python, then you have worked with optionals. They weren't called optionals, but you have worked with them. So what do I mean by that? What is an optional? An optional is a value that can contain nil or some other value. That's all it means. It can be nil or something else. If you've got an optional int, then that means it contains an integer or it contains nil. If you've got an optional string, then it contains a string or nil. Does this sound familiar at all? It ought to, because this describes pointers in every C-derived language or C-like language out there. A C pointer can contain null, sometimes called nil, or it can contain a pointer value. An Objective-C object pointer can contain nil or a pointer to an object. A Java reference can contain null or a pointer to an object. A Python variable can contain null or it can contain some other value. This is fundamentally just like Swift's optional type. So why did people have problems with this? It's because, I think, what they really have problems with in a lot of instances are not optionals, but rather the idea of non-optionals. So if you look at these C-derived languages, these things that have pointers or references, things that can be nil, what you have are optionals. What you don't have are non-optionals. In plain C, you cannot express a pointer that cannot be null. In Objective-C, until recently, you cannot express an object pointer which cannot be null. In Java, you cannot express a reference which cannot be null. And so people struggle with the optional concept, not because they've never seen nil before, but because they've never seen an idea of an object reference which can't be nil. And this is what's really hard. So I think of it as being like a fish learning about water. We've been surrounded by this concept forever. Ever since we started learning to program, we've learned about optionals. We, we haven't learned about non-optionals. 
So we've been swimming around in the ocean all of this time, and we don't even realize it's there. Now finally someone has come along and said, hey, there's this thing called water, and also this thing called not water. Above the ocean, there's this whole space where there is no water, and that is a really tough concept to grasp. But we're talking about it in terms of water, and we say, hey, water, learn about water. And we, the fish who have always lived in the water, say, this makes no sense. This is just space. And so when it comes down to optionals, a lot of the time it's not the concept of nullability, but rather the concept of non-nullability. Optionals apply to any type in Swift, and they just mean that you can add null or nil to the set of values that this type can represent. Once you understand that pointers in C and other languages like that are already optional, the whole idea makes a lot more sense. So optional is not bringing anything new to the table. When you create an NSView reference in Swift, if you an optional NSView, then that's just like NSView star in Objective-C. If it is a non-optional NSView, then things get interesting, because you know it always points to an NSView, and that is not the case in Objective-C. And of course, the other part that's difficult with optionals in Swift is the fact that the language demands unwrapping before you start touching this stuff. So in Objective-C, if you have an NSView star and you send a message to it, that could be nil. And if it is, then the message is ignored and nothing happens. In plain C, if you have a pointer and you dereference it, that could be null, and if you do dereference a null pointer, then it crashes or something else terrible happens. So it is required, in that case, to check for null and not dereference a null pointer, but the language doesn't enforce it in any way. And where Swift really gets you, where Swift really changes things, is by requiring you to unwrap the optional, which basically means it requires you to check for null before you do anything. So if you're used to other languages coming into Swift and you have trouble with optionals, you're not really having trouble with optionals because you've always known about optionals. You're having trouble with the fact that Swift enforces non-optionality before you can actually do stuff. And once you understand that nil is something you've always been dealing with and nil checks are something you've always been dealing with and Swift just enforces what you should have been doing all of this time, I think it makes things a lot easier. Final topic of today's episode, wiping and restoring your iPhone. This is a ridiculous, ridiculous thing to do, but it really helped me a lot, and I want to spread the word because I didn't think it was going to help, and it did, and if I had had someone knowledgeable telling me that it would help, I would have done it sooner, and I would have been happier. So here's the setup. I upgraded to iOS 11, like most of us, and I have an iPhone 6 Plus. After the upgrade, it was slow. And I'm talking, like, really slow, like multi-second pauses all over the place. I'd launch an app, it would take forever. Bringing up the keyboard and starting to type would just take forever, and it was really, really tough to use. Now, at first, I had assumed that this would be temporary, because I've read about how new OS upgrades sometimes have to do a bunch of re-indexing or something like that. you got to give it a couple of days. That's fine. I gave it a couple of days. Didn't really help. So then I thought, well, maybe it's just the way the OS is. Maybe iOS 11 is just slow. And I tried a couple of other things. Um, for example, Siri was really slow. If you uh, follow me on Twitter, I posted a video of me racing Siri on my iPad Mini 2 with iOS 10 and my 6 Plus with iOS 11. And the iPad Mini actually activates 
here's my request and responds to it before my iPhone 6 Plus even starts listening, which is pretty funny and kind of annoying. So I found a thing online that talked about flipping some settings and doing a reboot dance that fixes that. I tried that. It helped a bit. But the rest of the phone is really hard to use. I had been assuming that iOS 11 was just like this. I decided, well, I'm probably going to get an iPhone 10 or an iPhone X, as I always say mentally. I've been saying Mac OS 10 forever. I know that the X means 10, but every time I see iPhone X, I always think X and not 10. I don't know why. It's strange. But anyway, I'd planned to buy one, and that would solve the problem. Of course, it's not out yet. I won't be able to get one for another couple weeks. And I had planned to just put up with this slowness until then, but it just got really, really, really bad. I kept searching for solutions. I tried deleting unused apps. I tried flipping these settings on and off. I tried rebooting from time to time. Nothing really helped. And I kept seeing people online suggest wiping the phone and restoring it from a backup. And I thought, this is dumb. There's no way this would ever work, right? You just, you're putting it back the way it was. How would this fix anything? So I didn't try it, but it was so slow and it kept bothering me. And day after day, these multi-second pauses, not being able to type, I would get a text message that I wanted to respond to quickly. And it would take me 30 seconds or more just to reply because I'd be spending ages and ages waiting for the, the, the UI to appear and waiting for the keyboard to start responding. And all this stuff is just so frustrating. Finally, I couldn't take it anymore. It's desperate. And I said, well, you know what? A lot of people say that backing up and restoring helps. It's ridiculous and it makes no sense, but I'm going to try it because what do I have to lose? You know, it's not that hard to do, so I might as well try it. It is really simple. All you do is go into the settings, make sure your iCloud backup is up to date. It will actually prompt you to make sure that that's the case when you go to erase. You go in and do erase all contents and settings. It'll say, hey, do you want to make sure your backup is up to date? I did that. It did another backup. Then it erased everything, it rebooted, and it came back to the setup screen. Then I told it to restore my phone from the backup. It goes through a couple of other settings first, and then it says, how would you like to set up this phone? Do you want to set it up as a new phone? Do you want to restore from a backup? Whatever. I said, restore from a backup. I picked my iCloud backup. Half an hour later, it was done restoring. It does not restore all the apps immediately. Those have to download again off the internet, and that takes a very long time. But the phone can be used before that, as long as you don't need to use those apps. So I did this kind of late at night. I let it just restore those apps overnight while I was asleep. It was fine. Woke up the next morning, tried it out, and it was fast. And I thought maybe I was just imagining it. Maybe I hadn't tried it. I hadn't tried the right stuff yet. Maybe I was getting lucky. The uh, long pauses that I experienced before were not 100% consistent. It was very strange. So sometimes things would be quick. Sometimes they wouldn't. And I thought maybe I was just getting lucky, but it's been a day and a half now. So I had the phone all yesterday, post-restore, and it's just been consistently fast. It's not a speed demon. Obviously, it hasn't been hasn't become like an iPhone 8, definitely not like an iPhone 10. It's not the fastest hardware out there, but it is usable again. It's back to being pretty quick. Some things take a little time, but it's reasonable. It's not just freezing up trying to show the keyboard or anything like that. So it's wonderful. And now I'm thinking, maybe I'm not going to buy an iPhone 10. Maybe I'm not going to get new hardware. Maybe I don't need to. So that was really great. If you, listener, are experiencing the same problem, I would highly recommend trying it. You really have nothing to lose. It's very easy. It doesn't take that long. 
If it doesn't help, then no big deal. If it does, great. So this has really confused me because why did this help? I've got a couple theories. I don't really have any good theories. One theory is horrible, horrible file system fragmentation. If the files have been fragmented for a long time, doing a wipe and restore will make them all contiguous. I remember decades ago when fragmentation was a really big deal because the OSs didn't manage stuff very well. This was a technique you could use. We, of course, had programs to defragment our hard drives, but they were expensive. People who didn't want to buy one or didn't want to use one would take a different route and back up their hard drive, reformat it, and restore it. And the idea was that when you were restoring from the backup, it would write out each of your files one by one, and that would just, by its very nature, ensure that the files were contiguous. Now, fragmentation is much less of a problem these days. One reason is because the file systems are a lot smarter about it. HFS Plus, I believe, will automatically defragment certain files. helps keep that problem down. Also, we're using solid-state drives now. Fragmentation was really a big problem on spinning hard drives because if a file was fragmented all over the platter, that means that the read head had to move around all over the platter, and that takes significant amounts of time. On a solid-state drive, you don't have that physical movement anymore. There is still some penalty because you have some overhead from the metadata and not being able to do reads in large chunks necessarily, but it's a much smaller problem. So I thought maybe this came from fragmentation, but it really doesn't seem to fit because I was literally seeing multi-second pauses that have now basically disappeared. And the magnitude of the slowdown doesn't fit what I know about how fragmentation works on this modern hardware with this modern software. So it's a possible explanation, but I don't completely buy it. Another idea I had was that the conversion to Apple file system somehow went wrong. You'll recall that um, HFS Plus used to be the file system for iPhones for a long time, and then Apple recently introduced Apple file system and they converted everybody's devices. And I thought maybe when you convert to Apple file system, it doesn't quite do it right. Maybe somehow the converted file system is really slow. This doesn't quite pass the smell test either, though, because the conversion didn't happen with iOS 11. It actually happened with iOS 10.3 several months ago. And my phone was fine on 10.3. So what I can come up with, maybe... The converted file system was fine for 10.3, but causes some problems for iOS 11 for some unknown reason. Maybe the conversion with 10.3 isn't very good, and iOS 11 had to redo it for some reason. None of this quite makes sense. It worked, and I'm really happy for it. I really wish I could explain it, because it baffles me. But there's only so much I can do. If anyone out there happens to know what might have caused this, or at least has a better guess than I do, please write in, contact me on Twitter, by email, whatever, and I would love to know. And maybe I'll talk about it on the next episode if anyone has good ideas. That wraps things up for today. Thank you very much for listening to Episode 2. Subscribe to this podcast for more. Just like with my blog, if you have a topic you'd like to see me cover here or on the website, please send it in. You can reach me on Twitter at Mike Ash or by email at mike at mikeash.com. Talk to you next time. One final note. If anyone out there is interested 
In being my audio editor, I could really use someone who's good at removing all of my ums and ahs and awkward pauses and breathing sounds. I've been doing this myself, and it's okay, but it's kind of a drag. I would love to give you a share of the glory. In the unlikely event that this podcast ever generates any revenue, I would also like to give you a share of the revenue. If you're interested, please get in touch.